Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington President at Jazz Education Network, and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform, and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation, and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. Snagging the coolest guest today. Um, This is a person that we've been, Kelly and I have been um, seeing um, at various different professional development opportunities this year, person who is out there um, kind of putting some really new ideas out there for ways that we can serve kids in music ed. Um, So we are super lucky to introduce Peter Briggs, and Peter is the band director at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, Washington. Um, And um, we are just so stoked to get to spend the hour talking shop with you today. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. I um, first met Peter in person. We're on at least one committee right now for WMEA together, right? Yeah. but we met for the first time in person because Jazz Ed had a, a real life drumline festival mm-hmm. and it was our first time ever doing it. And we haven't had it since cause COVID. Right. Um, but I remember um, going into Peter's warm up room with his students and I heard, I could hear them playing as I was approaching and I was like, oh snap. This is what I like. I don't know yeah. what's happening here. The other things, my ears aren't as happy right now. Whatever's happening that I'm hearing right now, this is the business. Hey. And then I walked in and I was like, oh, these kids are so cool. <laughs> and then I saw you and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> what? Um, and then I was like, okay, this guy's doing the thing. And uh and I don't know how you're like how you made it happen. And I would right. like to understand how you've got um, such a vibrant, um, like soulful yeah. scene going on to talk to us. Yeah. Talk to us. Well, <laughs> ultimately, um, looking backward or looking forward, it's just about centering the kids, right? It's about um, giving the kids a space where they belong and where they can make music, right? And so um, our success has come from that point of going to the kids and saying, like, what do you want to do? What do you want to say through music? Um, And this has been a progression of me kind of understanding, like we have, especially when we come out of these collegiate programs, we have all these expectations of good music should. And it took me a long time to kind of set that to the side. Um, And I had some real crises along the way that helped me come to that realization where what fit for me and my kids wasn't fitting um, in the systems that were. 
Um, and by far, um, the best compliment that I had came the same day as one of the biggest defeats. And so this was like one of my um, uh, defining moments, I guess, for where I've ended up. And it was with our drumline. We had just finished a competition and man, my kids, I'm just like, they work so hard. I just am yeah. honored to work with them. And they, they just did a really, really great job energizing, like connecting with the audience and uh, man, they get it when they perform. Um, and uh, the, it was at Garfield High School and their um, athletic director came up to me in the stands when everyone was packing up and she said, man, I tell you what, I saw your kids perform and I felt like I saw who they were. And mm. she's like, it was such a contrast to the other schools. And I like, that was such a like monumental compliment because my kids in doing their thing, they were saying something about who they were and connecting with the audience in a way that she really felt was real. And at the same competition, um, we ended up taking second place and one of the judges spoke to one of my students and said, listen, you guys were amazing, but I couldn't in good conscience give a trophy to a school that was playing your style of music. Um, wow. So uh, to break that down a little bit, please, the judges, <laughs> um, the judges that come to those competitions come from a core technique style background. And so when they are looking through the lens of drumline, they're right. thinking of their own experience, their college experience, their DCI experiences. And when my students uh, are playing, it absolutely is technique. It's just different technique, right? Like right. we had to learn to flip cymbals on bandanas and they're playing with drums on slings, which is a totally different style of playing. So their lens of technique um, was not just that's different, but they were value judging, right? Mm -hmm. um, and saying, uh, it, yeah. So that was where, am I allowed to curse? Is that yeah. Yeah, it's PG. Okay. This is PG. happy hour. So that was such a good moment for me because I was, I was juggling this huge compliment where she was like, your kids connected with the audience. They were the fan favorites. And then this judge was saying, like not that style. And so it brought me to this place where I was like, fuck conventions. Like I'm, I don't care what they say, but what they, I'm providing is my kids opportunity to express themselves. And it brought me to a place of totally reimagining my expectations for what I'm providing kids. And it spilled over from that drumline experience into our concert band as well. And so, yes, we need to be doing, um, the the traditional band repertoire we need to expose our kids to that but there's so much more that they can experience too and they have to be able to express themselves through their instruments and so i've been pushing into more like we did some songs for concert band with pre-recorded beat track underneath and sort of blending some of those elements um i had a former student who was writing some dubstep and house music tracks to their long tone warm-up routines mm -hmm. so that they're connecting with the music in a way that's that's more authentic and then just pitching it to the kids and saying hey we have a concert coming up what do you guys want to put on that concert 
And it's scary for me as a teacher because I don't feel like I have the training or the tools or all the answers. But what I'm doing is I'm providing the kids a sense of um, <clears throat> bringing themselves in to the classroom, finding a way to use themselves and music together to create something uh, that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. I... Uh... There's more, even more to unpack so, here. So much to talk about here. Um, <laughs> I want to go back to um, some terms that I think a lot of folks probably don't know what they mean. And maybe like the societal norms that go along with those styles. Sure. Um, DCI is something that I am not at all familiar with sure, um, yeah. because of where we live in the country. Right. Yeah, and yeah. that's like the first time I saw it was in high school at, um, at like at some like marching band competition type things. And yeah. I was like, who are these people that are walking on the sides of their feet? And <laughs> like, I couldn't, what is that? And uh, that's not how Mr. Brown teaches. Right. Because, yeah. um, Why are they so stiff? <laughs> right, right. Totally. Roosevelt High School and all city marching band and UW marching band. I was in all three. They're all high step bands. Uh -huh. uh, and so for me, when I um, experience a marching band, I like people's knees up yeah. and mm -hmm. I like a swing in the step and there's personality on the face because it's about like kind of your individual swagger when you dance. And yep. that is what I am used to. So this whole DCI world is very unfamiliar to, I think, a lot of folks in the Northwest. It's pretty crazy. And, um, but it's a really white tradition. Yeah. And <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's funny about the, the like white traditional narratives and how those really take over as like the way things should be done. And, right. and you, I mean, you can see this in all different aspects. You can see it in jazz sometimes too, where where jazz has been codified and then becomes the middle-class white programs that are finding their way to excellence. But even in the marching tradition, I think this is so interesting. We think of the core style marching. When we talk about that, it evokes the idea of the military bands and all of the drum corps international, which is a predominantly um, white organization as far as the kids that are participating in it and, and yet, the people teaching and yes absolutely the experts in the field and yeah uh, composers and arrangers roots. Um, <laughs> the roots of the marching bands in general and DCI in specific have their roots in the African-American marching tradition so back in the late 1800s um African-Americans were conscripted for military service, but they were not allowed to have weapons. So they gave them instruments. So the, so the, there were re full regiments of African-American marching bands. And it was out of those marching bands, the African-American bands that the drum line started and that the marching band started. And that's why you see such a huge emphasis on marching bands at all the HBCU schools. They have the roots that go into the history of the black marching bands. And that is what grew into the DCI 
and um, the drum corps and the drum lines all have their roots back to those African-American marching band traditions. And yet when we think about DCI, we just see kind of the white centric what it's become yes. and, the and the narratives kind of get lost along the way. That's just like mind boggling. And you're speaking so much truth about um, bands, band programs that you see in our Puget Sound region. Um, but also like you're talking, like you said, jazz band and yeah, we could open up a whole nother thing on jazz band. But when you were talking, my brain was going orchestra, orchestra, orchestra. It's just like, oh my gosh, the dominant narrative about what is orchestra. Yeah. Uh, I've been having that conversation with my students this week. Yes. Cool. And, and they're like they're like okay i mean i'm like what is the dominant narrative and they're like white dudes and like across the board with every single class that was their first answer to what the dominant narrative is and there's just so much that needs to be addressed yeah and that's what is so cool is we have the opportunity as educators to um, we, we don't have to do anything except highlight what's out there, the untold narratives. There mm -hmm. is such a rich tradition in our country of black string playing. When you look yeah. through the South and the, um, whether it's like the Carolina chocolate drops or the banjo tradition, uh, we think of banjo as like a bluegrass white instrument. And right. yet it was developed in the Caribbean as a the African diaspora are the ones who came up with the banjo. And so there's a long tradition of black banjo players. And yet, yet we don't present that to students. And so, especially our students of color that are involved in the program, they, they have that sense of being disconnected from the roots and from their culture. And so it's so important yeah. for us to be able to provide, you know, those alternate pieces of the story so that they have a place to see themselves in what we're doing Right. It's like they have to check who they are at the door in order to um, interact with the music that a typical orchestra program or concert band program or um, sometimes even jazz program offers yeah. um, in the public schools in the United States. It's like you got to check who you are at the door. Right. And okay. but here's why here's here's why I hear um, teachers say that they don't do any of what we're talking about. Uh -huh. So um, let's use Peter. Let's use you as an example. Sure. Were you um, a specialist in HBCU style marching bands when you took your job? I knew nothing about drumline. Right. So most people say or they don't HBCU. know how. They're not experts. Yeah. So we're not gonna do it. So maybe you could walk yeah. us through how what that looked like in the beginning. Right, so, yeah. so first of all, um, the qualifier is, I think I've lost count of how many years I've been at Lincoln, maybe 15-ish, give or take, you know, it's been a while. So this isn't something where I'm jumping out and starting new, but when we go on our own personal journeys 
it's that idea of when you know better, do better, right? Mm -hmm. Having that sense of constantly being aware and constantly growing and just being okay with where you're at. When we should on ourselves, we're carrying burdens that don't help us move forward, right? So a short story, when I first started at Lincoln, there were, uh, there was no drumline. Um, they had fired the band teacher and the choir teacher at Lincoln because they were caught up in the excuses of the inner city and they combined it to one program. So when I showed up here, I taught band, choir, and orchestra at a comprehensive high school of 1,500 kids. It was just me. Oh. Um, so I had about 40 kids split between two different choirs. And I had uh, 25 band students split between two different bands. Okay. 11 of them were drummers and two of those drummers could read music, right? And I had three kids in orchestra. So, which was super fun. Um, so I just sat down and we played quartets together, right? Like you start anyways. Nice. Um, so um, partway through my first semester, one of the kids, one of the drummers was like, yo Briggs, we should start a drum line. And I was like, tell me more about that right? Like, what do you mean? Let's look about, so we were watching some stuff on YouTube. And, you know, the nice thing about taking over a failed program is my admin didn't care what I did, right? Right. Like anything was going to be better. So um, at the semester, they let me put all the drummers over here and all the wind players over here. And we were starting to do some stuff. Mm -hmm. um, this wasn't really intentional, but one of the things I did was regardless of our skill level, I just had my kids performing all the time. It didn't matter where. We had to borrow drums from other schools. We didn't have drums. We were just, so there was this one event, we were going down to the uh, Tacoma Art Museum to perform down there. And um, we actually rode the city bus with all of our drums and everything. Like they're, they're good memories from back in those days, but, um, while we were at the city bus waiting for the bus stop, uh, the bus to come, um, we were all right across the street from Lincoln. And this guy, white guy, but kind of like disheveled, like walks across the street and he like lifts up his shirt as he's walking like at us. And I was like, what is, what is going on? And then he starts like, like cursing and like, well, I shot up Lincoln and I'll do it again. And I'm like, um, so he's coming straight towards my student. And I was not sure what's going on. Obviously he was not completely, you know, with it. But my thought was, I just want to like get some space. So I start like chatting with him and like walking towards the corner and like, oh, when did you go to Lincoln, right? And like talking with him. So he's kind of at the corner and he asked me to cross the street with him. And I'm like, no, I'm going to stay here with my students. We're going to perform. And then uh, he's like, cross the street. And I was like, I'm, I'm cool. I'm going to stay here. And then he sticks his hand in my face. And I was like, and right at that moment, my students over by the bus stop dropped their drums and ran around me. And they're like, bah, 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 like cussing at him. And like, they made a circle around me. And I was like, what, what is even happening? And so he starts like talking, like walking backwards and kind of talking and slowly walks away around the corner. So my students were telling me that he had put a gang sign in my face. And I had no idea, like your hand is in my face, right? So I didn't know that I was supposed to be scared or intimidated because it was so far out of my experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so 
then they were explaining that he needed me to cross the street because of where the lines are and everything. He could do something to me on the other side of the street that he couldn't do where we were um, or, or something. And so I just came away from that experience with such a sense of curiosity to know what it's like to grow up in Tacoma, what it's like to understand the culture that my kids were growing up in. That one kid who had said, hey, we should start a drumline. He was a foster kid on Tacoma who was adopted when he was 14. Um, and he was, I think, 15 or 16. He was a, a sophomore when I met him. And just learning from my students, honestly, I feel like those first years at Lincoln, I learned more from my students about what it's like to be a young student of color or a foster kid or growing up in Tacoma than they learned from me about music. But I just had this innate sense of curiosity. And one thing I talk about with teachers is we have to get beyond judgment and into fascination. We have such a tendency in our culture to look at differences and to start to put value judgment. Like, that's different. That means it's less than because it's not what I'm used to. But when we get out of judgment and into fascination and say, wow, what must it be like to have three generations living in one household? Or what must it be like to not have a set of parents and to grow up in a group home? And to, to have that sense of fascination pulls us away from judgment and allows us to open up to understanding those different perspectives. So long story, but to get, to get back to your question, I just had this sense of, of joy at being able to provide these kids a chance to experience music and a hunger to learn more about them and how I could um, bring them into this space in a way that it would start to reflect them. Um, I I think the other thing is early on, because we had such successful programs right up the street from us, mm. there was no way that we were going to become one of those programs with three different bands and a jazz band and all this stuff. I just, there was no chance that little, you know, me uh, was, was going to make that happen. And so I, I just gave myself the freedom to say, we don't need to be that, but we need to figure out who we are. And mm -hmm. so that's really, it was those two things. Um, and I guess I would say the other thing is, um, I just have a, a comfortability of being in my own skin, right? I am a poindexter white guy who wears bow ties and suspenders and works with kids of color and we figure it out, right? But because I'm so um, aware of who I am and how I relate to the world, it gives me a sense of authenticity that my kids respond to. And so um, I think that's, that's a really um, strong piece of the culturally responsive or just um, being able to invite your kids to relax and be themselves is just really being comfortable with myself. And so I didn't need to know everything about HBCU programs. I didn't need to know everything about the histories that I've been you know, talking about of African-American marching bands. I didn't know that stuff, but I was comfortable with who I am and curious to create a space where my students could thrive. And I think that's really what helped us to build that process and to grow from there. And you found out together totally. how to do it. And I didn't have to be the expert, right? Right. Um, 
like there are a lot of things that I am expert at, right? I know that when it comes to teaching, I can play. When it comes to growing kids, I got you. But there's a lot that we're figuring out together. And so it's this it's the sense of of journey and, and working on it. And then it's a sense of shared ownership when you have those victories, right? Because um, we did this together. And so the kids recognize the growth in the program as, as being valuable. I'd love to talk a little bit more about this idea that being that that being your authentic self as the teacher, mm-hmm. that that just that act yeah. allows your students to feel like being themselves might be all right. Totally. But then also, you know, there are other things you have to do also so that your students will um you know go along with you but but um there's no reason to like not not be your natural self it only helps your students if you do so and that's something that i never really thought about but beth and i do very well because Um, we just had to be ourselves i mean just flat out like couldn't the job is hard enough adding to it is not what we need to do just couldn't do the job and like also wanted to be able to like have fun too. So I can't be like pretending to be someone else. I gotta be able to be myself. Well, and, and honestly, I think part of it comes from the the blessing, if you will, of not fitting the stereotype, right? Yeah. When yes. you are not the, um, the well-educated, privileged white guy in a formal program, right? You have this sense of, well, I'm not that, so fuck it, I'm just gonna be myself, right? And right. so- if when you are part of that minority crew, there there is a greater sense of being able to throw off the conventions. Right. The I think I fell into that because I am, you know, a white guy. I didn't grow up in a super strong music program, um, but I went to Central and I had a good, you know, a good education. Mm-hmm. But I ended up um, in a program where I didn't know the culture or I didn't have the skills myself, and so um, I just had that ability to to learn and grow. But you could have gone the route that is more common because you do fit that um, group. (laughs) And also you were starting with um, small numbers and could have built it into, you know, two orchestras if you wanted. Yeah, you could have done all those things. Why didn't you want to? Because the kids are more important. Yeah. Because, okay, I get to use music to grow kids. Mm-hmm. The music is just a means to an end, right? So if the end is having those programs, getting those scores from the judges, having the right people come and work with my band, then that's what I'm going to kill myself to get to. And then the kids are just uh, cogs in the machine to get us there. But that's, yep. not, that's not my value. I get to use music to grow kids. Hell, I could be doing a math, right? Like I could be using math to provide kids the opportunity to interact and to learn about themselves and learn about others. I just happen to be a music teacher, right? Um, so when I center the kids in that sense, that's what is directing the songs that we're playing, the places that we're performing, the people that I'm bringing in, because the kids 
and their growth, their experiences, their ability to um, learn about themselves and to find a voice. That's, that's really what becomes central. So um, I was having a, a conversation on a Facebook thread um, with another one of our really great um, educator friends that lives in Iowa and teaches there. And um, we, were, we were responding to a woman who had posted about um, getting um, comments like you got from the judge at the sure. Drumline Festival. Yeah. She got comments about her orchestra that were ultimately, I think, harmful to not only she, but the kids as well. And it, yep. it was just really harmful. And um, it made me like want to jump in to that thread. So I did. And I was like, can we think of something else as far as like what we're bringing our kids to? Do we have to like, do we have to value going to an adjudicated festival? And, um, you know, what, what, why do we do that? And, you know, um, how could we make it not harmful to go play yes. music for each other? Right. And, what you know, or get comments from someone, but it doesn't have to be like in this adjudication setup where there's a table of judges and sure. like, yeah. why do we do this? And um, she, my friend got into this back and forth with me and she was like, I feel that contesting is an integral part of the high school music experience. Mm. And I was like, I'm not quite sure that I agree. And I, Peter, I would love to hear your thoughts about this whole concept of contesting. Sure. Obviously your kids were at a contest. Yep. So I like, hate competition and I hosted a contest. I know. I want <laughs> I want to like okay. burn it all down yeah. and yet I still bring my kids to contests and I, I just, I feel so uncomfortable, Right. but I, I want to hear what you have to say about that. I have been rather anti-contest as in, I don't care. The disclaimer is though, that I'm not especially competitive. Mm -hmm. I'm fiercely competitive against myself and my own expectations. Mm -hmm. Like, oh man, but when it comes to like scores or judging or contests like that, racking myself up against other people, that's never been part of my disposition. And I think yeah. we have to be careful about, as music teachers, about throwing the contest out entirely when our disposition isn't to recognize or understand the value of contest. Mm -hmm. I have had some students that I have watched when it comes to a competition they are in, in a way that draws out their skill and their attention and their focus in ways that has really kind of caused me to back away from the throw out contest altogether. Um, mm -hmm. There are certain students, certain teachers that are really motivated by that. Mm -hmm. However, the contests have to be about the students, not about the prestige. Mm -hmm. They have to be about adjudicators who are not just disseminating truth and giving a score, but about growing kids where it's more like feedback based 
And what I dream of is much more interaction and relational. So my dream contest is to take my school and visit a school like Cleveland High School in Seattle. Let's yeah. get judges of color that my students can see experts in the field who look like them, who are interested in some of the same, you know, non-traditional band music, but have a broader sense of community with my students. Um, and let's have like a panel of experts, adjudicators, judges, whatever you call them, and students that connect with my students so that we can play yeah. for each other. We can all hear from the experts. We can walk away with, with uh, encouragement. Mm -hmm. And who cares about the score? Because at that point, um, we are using music to build community and to provide opportunities for reflection and growth and inspiration. And so I think that is, um, I don't know who wants to fund that type of event. I'm on board, but that's what I see for re-envisioning the concert contest or festival. Um, that's yes. what I want to have happen. Me too. I mean, that sounds delightful, you know. <laughs> Um, We're putting the festive back in festival, baby. You exactly. Yeah. You know, and and Kelly and I were known for music, right? We're using totally. to say, um, okay. I think it was my second year here at Lincoln. We were performing at our regional festival, and one of my students, a flute player, turned around and she's like, "Why did you even bring us? We don't deserve to be here." And that's because one of the groups on stage. <laughs> was all in their tuxedos and yeah. gowns playing amazing grade five music. And here we are showing up high school band, grade two and a half music. And I was like, hold on. I totally understand the frame of mind that you're coming from, but I am proud of what we have to say. And we have every right to be on that stage today. So I, I do, I get where you're coming from and I understand it, but you know what we deserve we have the same right to be on that stage and to say what we have to say. And I know that we've worked on it and I'm excited to present that. And honestly, I'm excited to present it for us because I don't care what they think, right? So, yeah. So I think that's really, it's it's important. It is. And um, we had a conversation a, a couple of weeks back with um, a couple of amazing performers that were a part of our show. Mm -hmm. um, and these two like super high level performers, we talked about, you know, you've been a part of, you know, a band program and jazz bands all your life that have been winning. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you, you know, you're really super psyched about it. You're jazzed about it. But what about the toxicity that happens with losing? Yeah. And um, it, Kelly and I were real honest when we were talking about um, how that can like bleed like a disease into your entire ensemble, like totally. that toxicity. And I just like, I would love to reinvent the festival scenario to be just like what you talked about. I want to take my kids down to, down to Cleveland and hang with Caitlin yep. and do that. And, um, we could hire the coolest clinicians ever and yep. just have a day of community music making. Um, and I also wanted to put in that Kelly and I kind of got to a point in our tenure where um, in order to remain entertained, <laughs> we needed to disrupt the system of festivals. So we 
um, started doing things that were completely, um, you know, like maybe I, the time I bought a guitar and we played it at a jazz festival. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, you know, just doing things that are so far in left field yes. that adjudicators have absolutely no way to comprehend and yes. they are totally unprepared to deal with us. So that's my case, dream. Yes, that's case dream. in point, case in point, bring a string ensemble signed up as a jazz band Yes. Oh, to the jazz band festival. Yes. Um, sign up your orchestra as a full orchestra and then truck 300 kids out and play a Star Wars thing totally. with a combined concert band and orchestra. I want um, them to say you can't do that here, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we rolled yeah. up to our, our concert band festival. This was in the before times. We rolled up to our last concert band festival, set up a sound system with giant speakers behind the band. Yep. We did our chorale warm up. It was a chorale, but we did it to a beat track. And then we played a song that was a concert band and, and pre-recorded soundscape. And um, I mean, this was still legit by a professional composer, but I've been working with some former students that are doing their own music producing right now. They're writing amazing stuff. And I'm gonna get sad here in a second, but this is the exciting part. Um, they are coming up with incredible music and we are working on taking their dubstep sequences and arranging it for concert band. And it's, there's like some of it's loop based and there's ways that you can like live mix the loops when they, the kids have all the stuff. And th that's what I want is I wanna hand like the judge a sheet that's like just the loops right here. And then the band goes out and does this like beat track recorded dubstep thing and they just take their pencil and set it down right like that's that's where i want to go yep. the challenge yeah, is the, uh... i have students that are so talented working on like writing and this guy he is writing this song called the big one and it's a dubstep song but it's about earthquake and so as it's like starting to build he has news clips audio clips of like talking about earthquakes that are happening but they don't quite say earthquake and then as dubstep does it builds up and then the beat drops and it's like the big one and then it's like going crazy like it's so cool but this kid graduated from my music program and is doing this for fun on, on, on his own, right? He has the potential, I, I kid you not, to, to get this stuff published, recorded. There are schools all across the country that need access to this. And yet, where do I send him for growth? I can't send him to a, co a collegiate composition uh, professor because he doesn't fit and they're going to laugh right. at him. I can't send right. him music production because they can give him coaching on recording, mixing, producing, you know, writing beat track stuff. But as far as arranging or fitting that into concert band music and providing stuff that will fit with what we're doing with our beginners or intermediate levels, he's going to need to know some of those skills. And yet this is the nexus that we've got to be creating opportunities and access for, for these kids to go. And it's just the work. I mean, it's what we have to be working to find the work. a work. Yeah, we, we we start innovating in the lower grades and then cut the students loose. Um, they need to be they need to have a place in yeah. higher ed. They need yeah. to have a place in higher ed well, where they can continue building that. But see, it ends up being kind of the problem of the adjudicator doesn't know what to do. The music program or the music professors don't know how to handle this kid. Yeah. And they, they're not equipped 
to get this kid from point A to point B. Totally. Um, and it's just like these kids then find alternative routes to yeah. um, to the music um, that they want to do if if they end up doing that. It's a totally alternative and community based route. Right. Right. And I I don't particularly maybe we could save this conversation for another time, but um, I. I cannot count uh, off the top of my head the number of my students that have gone on to study music in college and then dropped out because they don't fit yep. in. Yep. They can't. Yep. Find, they can't find a place. But Immediately. What, yeah. What I did want to go back to, though, Kelly, you had asked a little bit ago about um, my approach to um, centering the students and how I really came to that. So it's more than being comfortable in my own skin and comfortable with myself. Um, I have studied, um, gosh, for maybe the past 14 years, um, something called trust psychology, which is essentially if you have a high level of trust within a community as a core value, you will have a high level of success that results out of that community. So if you can focus on building trust, then you will have respect, you will have safety, you will have positive risk taking, you'll have authentic engagement, you'll have people that are willing to set their barriers aside and open and engage and, and like see and be seen. And all of those different aspects are so important um, for us to establish in the classroom. And so what does that look like working with my students? Um, this is like a whole uh, workshop uh, shameless self-promotion. Um, this is like, I started Sound Ed as a way for me to, it's like a, a side hustle for me. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing um, sessions uh, for music stuff, but also like schools have brought me in. I've done three or four different schools have brought me in to do trainings for their whole staff. Um, districts have brought me in for music specific stuff. But, um, but on that trust psychology piece, um, it allows us to build a place in the classroom where the different elements of the culture that we're creating with the students are all based around growth and focused on making sure that we have trust. So a couple of different elements. It means that we have to know ourselves like we've talked about. It means that we have to be curious to know our students, right? And that we have to establish a space that is safe for our kids. So it is our job as teachers to fiercely protect the classroom. If we protect the classroom, then we get to set the code of what happens. And you see that with, with classes or teachers that are not as strong, there's always, I guarantee you, there is a student that protects what's going on in the classroom and the other mm -hmm. students will defer to that student. So you will walk into a, like, a class that's not running well and just by watching, you'll be able to see which is the student that's setting the code of behavior. It's because that student, whether it's uh, respect that's driven intrinsically, like they admire and respect that student, or whether it's extrinsic, like fear-driven respect, mm -hmm. there is that level where that happens. And so we as teachers have an obligation to look through that lens of trust psychology, of setting up our classroom, of building relationships, of engaging the students and their stories uh, in the work that we're doing, such that when they walk in, 
I mean, this is my dream. Like my kids walk in the classroom and they, they just have this sigh of relief as they're able to be in that space where they're known and where they're seen. And it comes in all the small ways of teaching. Like when someone's talking in my classroom, I ask the students in the front or to front two rows to turn and look at that person. So I'm asking a quick question. Uh, so-and-so trombone player is going to talk. The kids turn around to look at them while they're speaking because it's a tiny little gesture, but it says we value what you have to say. When my students tell me they can't come to an event, I don't get upset with them. I say, listen, you know what? We're always better when you're here, but I totally understand you take care of what you need to take care of. I'm not going to put extra burdens on them. I know that if they could come, they would come. And so I'm not going to punish them. I'm not going to lower their grade. I'm just going to make sure that they know that when they walk in my classroom, they are seen and they are valued and that we are better with them along for the ride. And then it starts to build this culture where my kids legitimately have a greater sense of family in the classes that we have in our school than they often experience outside of our school. And so then they turn around and invest in the program in different ways. And man, I will have my students especially my seniors, every fall we have this conversation where I talk about what was your experience as an underclassman. And they will start to talk about the upperclassmen. And like, this is a natural experience of students in music programs, but this is a response of how we set up the program here at Lincoln is they will oftentimes get emotional when they're talking about the students that invested in them when they were underclassmen. And then I'm like, guess what guys, now that's you. Now this is your opportunity to invest in and create. This program doesn't happen by accident. It happens because those students invested in you and invested in this program and built that sense. So I actually, I pull the hood off the engine and I talk to my students, particularly upperclassmen about the trust psychology. I'm like, listen, when you're out there in the real world, this is the interaction you're going to have with your boss. And this is how you can use that trust psychology to leverage that experience and build a relationship that you can use as capital, right? And so I, I, when you're running a sectional, this is what you got to do. If somebody is throwing shade at somebody else, you got to appeal to solution. Don't talk about the problem, but you're like, yo, 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 we don't do that around here. We build each other up or we have a community. Like you, you talk about what you want to have happen in a way that avoids the discussion about the problem and so wow i'm talking really fast but i'm getting excited <laughs> so it's just it's so critical that we think about all those pieces of the psychology within our classrooms and our spaces because it allows us to grow kids that's what it's all about right it allows the kids um uh so if i were to like push I mean, on your let, hand let's pause for one moment here yeah go for it the three of us believe that's what it's all about. Yes. But I don't know. I, I don't know very many teachers who got music teachers who got into the business to grow kids. Sure. It's, I want to have an amazing. I want to conduct the more. Yes. Want, yeah. Right. And so, I mean, obviously that points to how we have to, um, uh, change what our music ed departments are doing, how we can start to grow the teaching pool, but that's a whole different thing. Sure. But how do we encourage teachers who are not viewing music as our tool yep. for growing kids? How can we be 
convincing or like what there's work there that needs to be done i'm really curious yes. if you have thoughts about what that could look like i i do and first of all i want to high five that sentiment i call it the meslenka effect meslenka is yes. a yes. well-known composer in the concert like <laughs> i have college students constantly that come and observe my programs whether it's a short or long-term observation they're like yo briggs what you're doing here is so cool i just I want to work at a school where I can teach Meslanka, right? <laughs> All the time. I hear that. Like, oh my God. <laughs> with these students is so inspirational, but I yep. want to do this music with my kids. And I get it. Like that's where they're at in college. That's the music they're playing. Mm -hmm. That's what gets them up in the morning. But here's the deal. Um, is it about you or is it about your students? Yep. And I think we can be bold and call that out. Is this yeah. your dream of your <laughs> program? Is this your vision? Or is this about the students? And which do you want to prioritize? Because you can't do both. And you know, I venture to say this. I am constantly amazed by my students. What I one of One of the quotes I always come back to is, if you want to inspire your students, you have to be inspired by your students. And so those teachers that are out there because they have their vision for their program and it's about them, the reality of using that selfish vision to inspire students is very disconnected. And so when we come to that sense of I'm looking at my students and totally inspired, that these kids have no business spending that amount of time practicing their drum rudiments at home. And I just, I have these kids who come failing all their classes and they're like, I just don't know that I'm getting as much out of my practice sessions as I should. And I'm like, what are you even doing? Right? Like that just inspires me. And when I find my inspiration there, I earn the ability to, to grow and to, to change the students. And so that's what I would say. The only other qualifier though, is we also have to be careful. I have a big heart and I love my job. I love my students, but I also know that unasked for advice comes across as criticism. Mm -hmm. So if my job, and I'm going to put it as colleagues, right? If my job now is to grow colleagues, we want a profession that is student-centered, that is able to deconstruct the systems without imploding or without finding that insecurity. To, to, you know, to envision the way forward. The reality is I could walk to a program down the street into that teacher's classroom and say, listen, here's a better way to do this. If you want to have success with your students, what about this and this and this? I, I don't even have to be critical in the way I say that, right? I can talk about solution. I can cast vision for what might work better. But the honest reality is unasked for advice comes across as criticism. And so if they're not in a place where they want to hear that or they can comprehend it, it's simply wasting my breath. And so I'm not trying to be defeatist about our profession as a whole. But my approach, um, Sound Ed's like tagline is inform, influence, and inspire. Mm -hmm. And so my hope 
is that by doing what I do, by sharing my passion in a way that I, I try to, that that will inspire the curiosity and other people to want to be engaging in a way that I am. And then, that, then I can use that in the workshops to start to have people come and say, how are you doing what you're doing? Um, because I just think going up to the people who've always been doing what they're doing uh, and telling them to do it differently, they're just not gonna. So I'm going over here and having a party and having a blast. And yeah. then they're starting to look over and be like, oh, right. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like, and it's kind of the same thing with what Kelly and I are doing with Beth and Kelly show. Yeah. Um, I think we as teachers do a lot of um, thinking, um, self-assessing. Sure. Um, we do a lot of like, transforming really when um you know when we're out on a walk listening to a podcast yeah um laying in bed um just like we do a lot of thinking like maybe somebody is sitting listening to this right now and something you said is a seed that's planted and they're gonna be like that makes sense and then they see themselves in something you said yeah. And they're going to think about it all weekend. And then they're going to go to their classroom on Monday and, and something is going to, there's going to be some thought, you know, this type of change in our teaching behavior happens over a longer period of time. It can't just happen like this. Sure. You know, but I believe that, <laughs> but I believe that we can affect some teachers to think more and Kelly and I are teachers and we are still thinking and learning and growing and self-assessing and, and like trying to get as many people's perspectives as possible, Yeah, you know? So I feel like you are doing things right now to help. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the other thing too, is that, um, gosh, in, if you want to talk about pandemic teaching, I feel like this is a relatable moment. Oftentimes we look at change or where we want to go and we make such a big deal out of it that we don't even know how to take the first step. And yeah. yet when we start to walk down that path, it turns out that it's really not nearly as overwhelming or radical as we expected. And so for the pandemic teaching side, I'm like, guys, I know you have an E, but turn in three assignments and you'll have a B. It's not that hard, right? But for us as teachers, when we're talking about those mindset shifts mm -hmm. that build a sense of joy and efficacy, it's those tiny little mindset adjustments where we let the problems go and we just think about solutions. It, that's one simple thing that we can do tomorrow. And we can say, every time I notice myself thinking about a problem, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to think about what the solution would be. And those little mm -hmm mindset shifts that we have along the way really are so easy to implement and just bring this sense of openness and joy and positive energy as we move forward. So it is, it's a both and. It's an overwhelming sense of a journey because there's a long way that we need to go and want to go. Yeah. Also little tiny things that we can do right now to make the road more smooth and to make the journey more fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited about it. I, I keep, I've been thinking, uh, for a while now about, um, 
adjudicators and I I have this like bug in my I can't let go be in your bonnet be in my bonnet if you will about (laughs) about the adjudicator who just like couldn't um you know give you first place because it you know didn't hit their but we sort we institutionalize that right like even with the rubrics that we use at festivals but um and I, I've just been thinking for a while now about how we could do that better. Like, is there some sort of holistic, more universal type assessment tool that actually would um, empower students a little more? I, you know, I, I, I do like the Jazz at Lincoln Center one and they have, they have, um, one of the one of the lines is soulfulness yeah and what i love about that is that it is not definable in a way that everyone would agree upon yeah and yet we still all know what it means we all yeah and i like that i i think maybe that type of word might steer us where we need to go you know it just is, there's just so rigid what we're looking for. It, it allows, right. it, it doesn't allow, it doesn't allow for um, us to do what we want to do. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, and I, I can't stop thinking about the Reno Jazz Festival I adjudicated, I don't know, maybe five years ago or so. There was this school, I wish I knew hmm. who and where they were from. They like knocked my socks off. They yeah. came out and the, their director was like, we are going to improvise this entire piece right now. Huh. And I'm just going to give them a few words. Yeah. And it was, I just closed my eyes and I just listened. And then I wrote a few notes. Yeah. yeah. And then they played the next song and there was a theremin solo. Oh, I remember what? this. I remember, remember this. And I was like, crying at the end of their set i was crying right and i looked to both sides of me and these are um people that i love right and they were like marking on the rubric very low scores and i gave them like 100 percent a plus plus right and i'm looking over i'm like what are you guys doing i'm like crying right our value set was so off we do the same job we're friends and our value system was so off that i knew i had to throw that rubric away in order to honor that group of kids and they were were taking it so literally that they were like giving these kids that just improv i mean it was um it just freaked me out man i i can't Anyway, you know, I'm thinking about this in the back of my head this whole show. Yeah, like how do we do? How do we fix that? Yeah, I think part of the problem, um, my one of the things that has helped me be successful is that insistent focus on solution, and Mm -hmm. I don't even care what the problem is. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to cast vision for the solution, right? And it's so simple. And yet we as music teachers are error detectors, right? Errors detection. They're too loud. And so how easy is it to flip it and to say, this needs to be more in tune. What if this was quieter, right? Like, let's make this quieter. 
Um, so it's that sense of positivity and going to solution. And in our rubrics, you're starting at 100, and then the judges are taking points off, going across the scores. I wonder if we could build it up the other way, because the comments that I get a lot of times are negative. This didn't happen. This was wrong. Right. Maybe we could do it. I don't know if it's still point-based for competition, but every time you're doing something well, they're adding a point and then explaining why they gave you a point. Because then you're getting the sense of not just what was going well, but for more points next time, add this in and this. It's just trying to like, I wonder how we could goose the judges to get more of that growth oriented conversation. I usually write on the, the back. Down. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I don't know what that would look like points wise, but it's certainly something to think about. I usually I, write on the back next steps. Yes. Da, 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 da. So yeah. I wonder if there's something like that. And what further conversation on that? Yeah. I mean, let's write a rubric. Let's let's do it. I and think. it could be applied to a string trio or yeah. a concert wire or a drum line. This is what I want. But even, I mean, even the idea of rubrics as we use them, like right. we've got to redefine the columns. Because if you're saying below standard, right. approaching standard, right? right. Like um, it's the idea in, in, listen, I use rubrics too, but I get excited in my comments, right? Like I'm so excited when you add this and this, because then you're going to find the success you're looking for and you're not there yet, but you're on your way. I let my students turn in their assessments as many times as they want until yeah. they get a score that they like, right? Yeah. Because I don't care if you can play that scale on October 12th, I want you to play it eventually, right? And so we got we to gotta find a way to roll that sense of excitement for growth mm -hmm. um, and not just have the judges be the the reserved experts on the pedestal, you know, sowing their wisdom to the masses. Right. And like the whole, the whole uh, process of it is the adjudicators sit in a table somewhere like out in the house of sure. an auditorium and the rest of the auditorium is empty. And, <laughs> and, and then one of the adjudicators has to go and give a clinic. And like, that's also like, kind of a crazy ask too for like yes, it's tough for, it's like for the kids to to like who is this person they don't know me right and for the the adjudicator that goes in and does the clinic it's like I don't know these kids and I don't know where they were right. so it's so like that whole entire process is like it's it's an experience but why do we hold it so high in regard as like, this is the it, this is it. This is the top of all of our um, assessing that we do. I'm gonna make a proclamation here and now on the Beth and Kelly show. Yes. I am no longer yes. going to allow a clinician to give us a score unless they have spent time in my classroom. Because if you don't yes. know what my day-to-day -day is like, how dare you tell me? Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And he said it right here, folks. And um, on the Beth and Kelly show. And no, seriously, oh, though, like, like I have seriously, still, even in 2020. Okay, not last year, because COVID, I have still had judges where the first thing they do is mark down my band because we're not all wearing matching outfits. Right. What bullshit is that? I know. 
I'm just no. honored that my kids showed up on time and brought their instruments. And yes, often I have, oh my gosh, I was doing my grad school program where I had to videotape the band. So I had to have a camera in the back of the band at our uh, like contest, right? <laughs> my sax player forgot his music. And so he has a blank stand and is doing all his songs from memory. My professor marked me down because he didn't have his music. And I said, bullshit, I'm yeah. proud of him because he did it anyways and did it from memory. I should get more points for that, not get more yeah. points for that. Sorry, sorry. So uh, No, I mean, all of this stuff, all of this stuff goes into like who we are as like from a day-to-day -day perspective of a program and the work we do in our classrooms right. and um, a, an adjudicator that saw an eight minute performance and yeah. gives a 20 minute clinic. Um, a, they're not gonna change your life with the clinic sure. they give. And B, how can they possibly Listen. know? Um, I, I'm not trying to like self promote here because we all wanna throw down the festivals anyways. But I would be a hella good adjudicator because I get so excited. Like if I had 20 minutes with kids I don't know to offer an experience that's gonna get them excited. I am a hella good together, adjudicator. That's gonna help you grow. It doesn't matter what you did out there or what you did before to get ready. But you know what? I never have and I doubt that I ever will be invited to adjudicate because I don't have the pedigree or the bands or the expectations that get you. Oh my list. God. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I want to be on those lists. Right. But, but it's like, let's find a list of people that are passionate and excited and in it for the kids and let's get them to be the adjudicators. Yeah. yeah. And also let's, um, let's create a festival and yeah. some rubrics and um, we can find those types of adjudicators and have them be there um, yeah. as, as people who are offering um, critique and support and mentorship, yep. as opposed to a score on a piece of paper and 20 minute clinic. Right. And then kids walking away feeling like doo-doo. Right, and so we'll, we'll just save the money on the participation trophies you order and like the yeah. big like because championship listen, cup, we'll save money on that. We don't have to have those. I don't want my kids to think about what their score was for intonation or articulation. I want my kids to think about, did you say what you came to say? Yeah. Were you able to say something that expressed what you had in your mind and communicated something of value to the audience? Because that's what our kids need to hear, right? You are 15 and what you have to say matters enough that we're going to put you on a stage for other people to yep. hear. And so yep. when up to this event, how are you committing yourself to communicate something of value to other people and do that without words, do that through your clarinet, right? Like that's, that's the, the metric that I want my kids to judge themselves by. Oh, there's, uh, so I we have a project for this summer y'all's. We have a project. Uh, we're gonna do it. We're gonna round you up into this, Peter. You're cool. in. Over to here. Now. So uh, we're gonna be doing this, and then we're gonna host something, and oh. and we're gonna do this, and um, we're gonna just change the definition. They can go ahead and keep on going with what they do over there, but yeah. we're gonna create something new 
over here. <laughs> it's going to be the cool. The judges get is what did they say? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes it's like, you know, the kids looked totally scared and um, you know, we, we gotta be able to like get the climate of these events to be something where the kids feel compelled to get on that stage and say what they gotta say. Yeah. Uh, did we look at the clock just now? I know. It's just it's like, I know. It's like we're totally just getting started, though. Womp. Um, well, that's okay because it's fun to have future projects. Yes. And, um, and I, but I, I just really can I just tell one little story because we need a little laugh as we leave. Yes, please. <laughs> Do you remember at Washington Middle School? when we were told that we needed to empty out the trophy case that was in the lunchroom. Oh. Um, be, and I think that in my memory, the reason was because there were like only music trophies and it was a little bit like, you know, yeah. we need to put oh up trophies God. of other things too. And, and we were like, what are we gonna do with like a hundred plastic trophies, you know? Yeah. And um, we didn't wanna put them up in our rooms. So we told the kids that if they wanted one, just bring, you know, five bucks after school and you can take one home. Nice. We just had a little flash fundraiser. <laughs> and um, there were like kids walking home with their <laughs> trophies from 1992 or whatever. That's it was nice. oh. hilarious, dude. And then, you know, we had enough to refill that thing. I mean, just with all the, uh, trying to move all the, the ones that didn't have a place before we cleaned out that little cabinet and then had to reshift. And oh, I'm sure there's things we need. I'm sure there's tons more in there now that just need to like be moved. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, why do, why do we do these trophies anyway? You know, I mean, I tell my students all the time, you are not, I promise you, you will not remember the number of points that we got on the score sheet, but you will no. absolutely remember the people that were on mm -hmm. the stage with you. Mm -hmm. Yes. That is a fact. We need to cultivate that. We need to cultivate that type of community environment yep. when people come together to make music and learn. A million thanks to our listeners, followers, and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product, and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us, and we are delighted you've decided to join.